sharing huge space. Look how fast he's going. Polar opposite of the conditions he won in Lords. Rain soaked Lords. They're getting the last step down. The crowd is roaring. He is going to do it. He's going to smash the time. Downhill racer and our expert here today, Andrew Needling. Welcome, welcome back, podcast listeners. This is Moving the Needle Podcast. And if you're new to the show, make sure you go back in the archives and check some of the other episodes we've already done. The likes of Brendan Faircloth, Cam Zink, and last week, Nino Schruter have been on the show already. This week is a good friend of mine, and we raced together for many years, Mark Beaumont. He's a two-time World Cup winner, multiple times on the podium, and he was a very thoughtful rider and really believed in preparation and thoughtful process to gain confidence. We dug into his career, even taking a year away from racing, and then to come back and realize how tough it was physically to get to the top of the sport. So enjoy this episode, and I'm sure you're going to learn a lot from it. Mark Beaumont, it's been a long time. I'm excited to get caught up and get stuck into bikes some more. Welcome. Hey, Andrew. Yeah, super cool to uh, to come on your uh, new uh, venture. And uh, I guess I've kind of been living under a rock and uh, escaped the mad world of mountain biking. Or not escaped, but just been a bit more low-key in, in uh, what I've been doing. So, yeah, super pleased to be on and uh, have a chat with you. Well, I look forward to it. Well, why don't you tell the listener a little bit about your history in, in the bikes and kind of who you are since, you, as you mentioned, you may have been laying low here and there post-racing. Post um, yeah, I guess just um, the same as any kid who is, you know, gets into a sport and is inspired by, by riding a bike. Um, I sort of got into that at school. 12, 13, I started racing and then uh, managed to turn pro in 2004 and then um, held a pro career until 2017. So I had a, I had a pretty long career and um, managed to win some British championships on the way, uh, a couple of World Cups, and basically turned a childhood dream into a career for way longer than I ever expected and firstly and then secondly achieved so much more than i ever thought that i would be able to just uh just a small town english boy um bumming around in the country you know so it just started like like any kid i think we have similar similar upbringings going to the small races and um yeah i mean you've you've maybe let your riding do more of your talking even when you were racing there's not many people that have won World Cups, let alone two. I think that's way harder. There's a lot less that have gone on for multiple wins. And we're going to get into to all that. So um, how's the riding been, been lately? Have you been uh, be able to get out on your bike and, and enjoy it post-racing post career? Um, I guess I had, like, when I finished in 17, I did ride in 18. Like, I rode for a bike shop, and it was super low-key from you know, from a full professional, uh, deal. I just had a trail bike and I entered a few races, maybe three or four in one year. And to be honest, I wasn't really enjoying it that much. Like I still, I still competitive. And I think that it's just bread. The competition is just bred into you and you can't ever shake it. Um, so when I went to a race, I might not have been enjoying it, but I didn't want to be embarrassed. So I, so I made myself compete. And, and you know try my best on that day and then the year after 
um, in uh, 19, I started riding for Evil just as like a, um, you know, an ambassador, a low key thing. And they just said, oh, well, have some fun with it. Maybe do some edits, do no real structure. I don't really have a structure. I just do it as and when. And uh, I started to enjoy it again. And I've been really enjoying it um, up until now. And then lockdowns come and I've almost dropped back into a, a sort of a pro a pro sort of regime apart from I don't have to do the shitty stuff like go to the gym or do sprints I just go and enjoy riding my bike which I mean that's super cool to have done something for you know 20 years and I still thrive on it as much as I did when I was a school kid getting off the bus the first thing I wanted to do was go and grab my bike and jump dirt jumps or go up the woods and blast blast a trail is it, is it almost surreal looking back? I sometimes have been forced into reminiscing of the career and, and, you know, friendships like you on the circuit. We got to know each other really well. But I remember coming back from school and just wanting to build jumps or go riding. And you never thought about making a career and people aspire to be pros. Does it feel surreal what you achieved and just having a career in mountain biking? Yeah, totally. Because I can still remember, you know, I knew when MBUK come out or when Dirt Magazine come out, like which day of the month. And I would like, I would buy it in those early days. And, and I was like, at first, you know, seeing these heroes in the magazine, like whether it was Steve Pete or Tim Ponting, like Rob Warner, like all these British guys that were breaking into the world circuit. And, and that was my only, my only contact with, with them was seeing these people. And then, it wasn't really that I like thought I'm going to do that. It wasn't until I got to sort of junior where I thought, Oh, maybe I have a shot at this. But up until that point, I was just like, I want to build, I want to build bigger jumps or I want to be creative and build something sketchy as hell, build some ghetto jump in the middle of the woods or something, you know, not really with an idea, just I'd seen a picture of it in a magazine and I wanted to build it so I could do it. And we'd call like, um, there's one place that we used to go is in a national park. Um, it's called the Longmind. I think actually you might have been there when you stayed with us years ago. And uh, we called it, it was Rocky. So we called it the Nevergal section. And I'd seen Nevergal on like the Sprung series or in a magazine. And then, you know, we'd replicated it into being, that was, it was like Nevergal. So we took our backpacks on a Saturday in the morning, our, our parents dropped us off and we stay there from like 9.30, 10 in the morning until like dark and just ride this rock section over and over, like trying to be like the heroes that we watch um, on the videos or in the magazines. And did you remember, were you visualizing? Were you at the top with your mates thinking, hey, I'm dropping into Nevigal, which, excuse me, for the listeners, it's one of the most iconic tracks that they used to go in, the, I guess, the early 90s, which we never really went when we were racing. Did you no. actually visualize like I'm racing Nevergal and I've got to get a good time? Yeah. Yeah, I did. I think that's and, brilliant. And I used to think about how much their hands must hurt. Like this section was the the section that we had was like kind of rocky and then you made a left and then you went down the edge of a like a like a little gorge, like a stream, and it was quite technical and fairly narrow, but it was really rough. So that's what we did and we like we'd have um you know like arm pump <laughs> it was probably not even a minute and a half long of rocks but 
you know, you think, oh, how much and how hard it is. Like I couldn't even comprehend what, you know, the what Nevergal actually looks like. I've never even ridden Nevergal. <laughs> There's a lot of other sports where kids are quoted as saying, say in golf, they were making a putt and they envisioned winning, you know, the Masters, which is equivalent of our world champs. And it seems yeah. like when you were young, you were doing very similar things. You were aspiring, visualizing your little rock section as one of the world's gnarliest downhill tracks and, and kind of getting into the zone and picturing going down there. Yeah, yeah, totally. We we did that a, a lot. Um, and whether it was, even on national level, we would go to sort of iconic tracks um, that were in. The national series was actually quite big when I started. Um, and we'd try and replicate those those jumps or those sections back at home to try and get us into like a better a better state of you know pre- preparation for I wasn't training or anything I was just trying to ride but then replicating these things you know back home for when I went to race and I did national champs at Eastridge which is fairly iconic for from a british standpoint but i guess the wider world wouldn't know what eastridge is um and there was a kind of like a like i'd call it like a fadeaway but then a little gap in the middle and and this was like maybe 99 98 99 um pe1 anyway pe1 the 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 pro men and he was pre-jumping this fadeaway from like 10 foot back and i had a giant 990 at the time ATX 990 it was terrible flexy thing but because it had these we put these travel plates on and it made it even worse but it had more travel um yeah and he was pre-jumping it and I tried to do it and I wasn't like you know I wasn't strong I was just a weedy kid and I remember collapsing because I like mistimed it and pinched my thigh in the shock do you remember where the shock was on those bikes were they near I'm not sure were they near the the top tube yeah like horizontal under the top tube but back towards where the seat post was so so imagine me like mistiming this thing completely and not like getting the transition landing flat my little arms just collapse so do my legs and then I like pinch like pinch in on the bike and the shock bottoms out on my inner thigh (laughs) you know just like just dumb stuff like that that's like you never forget um but yeah definitely like i don't think in those early days i was like thinking i'm gonna be a professional or you know there's kids now that are coming up through through the sport that have been you know um finn for example finn eels um he we've known about him for years like seen him in whistler as a tiny kid and and it's like that path has almost been forged for him already I think from from me personally, it was like, I love doing this and I want to try and push what my capabilities. And then it so happened that it, it kind of rolled, snowballed into something where I made a career out of it. I wonder if someone like Finn and, you know, the likes of Kate Edwards and Chaos Seagrave, we saw them as youngsters, you know, Chaos, you kind of always knew that he was going to aspire to be a pro rider. I wonder if that expectation sits on those kids' shoulders and they lose some of the... Look, it looks like they're having a good time on their bike, but at some stage they're 
forced into a pro career or forced into a factory ride way earlier than say you or I were. And I wonder if they lose out on some of that, that passion and, and all that, that we had. I, t- I totally agree with you. I think that, you know, it's, it, we like, we well, first and foremost, you and I didn't get to prove ourselves as an under 18. So you had to prove yourself in the men. And in a way, it's like you're in at the deep end and it's harder. But in another way, if you get 25th or top 20 and you're under 18, it's like the biggest achievement ever. But then at the same time, if you get 50th because you make a complete hash of it, nobody really notices. So it's not like you don't, you don't kind of, you don't have that pressure of perhaps, you know, being in the factory colors or, you know, oh, well, Mark Beaumont got 10th in junior and he's been winning all the national races. So he should come and win, you know, the, the world cup juniors or, you know, whatever it might be. Like, I think in a way it makes your, your desire to like be at the top in the elite level it's like a slow path where you have to like you know you, you, i'm sure we could talk about this for ages like the things that you had to go away and do as far as training and, and improving to get you know a top 30 and then a top 20 and then a top 10 and then finally a podium you know yeah we i spoke about it with sven and uh, by the time this comes out that bench racing episode should be out and someone like finn is is so fast and but capable of so much but there's expectations from other people the factory rides himself winning so much being quite fast and now he almost wants to beat Loic before he kind of figures out his racecraft in the elite category and maybe that means backing off getting a 15th then a 12th then the podium he kind of just wants to jump straight to winning because it's almost expected of him or he expected of himself so we could go on for ages and I think there's pros and cons to how the juniors are now uh, getting factory rides. That That is for sure. And you mentioned being being a junior and, and at one stage realizing, oh, I might want to make a go of it. Do you, do you remember that race? Was it a result? What made you go, hey, I need to maybe take this more seriously? Um, I know PD was around and you, you got some help from him. Where, where did that, when did that happen? Um, so the winter... I signed for Steve 2000 to 2000 yeah 2000 to 2004 I rode for under Steve Pete Royal and Orange Bikes and then I can't really remember two so 2001 was my first international races so I did Worlds that year and I did Leysin as my first World Cup, Switzerland Leysin, and then Caprun the week after. So I did, I did Euros in Lavinio. Yeah, so I did Euros in Lavinio, Worlds in Vale, Leysin Switzerland World Cup, and Caprun Austria World Cup. So I think it was probably that year, 2001, where I thought, if this goes right, then I would look to be making a go at it as pro but i went to college that year i think yes and then 2002 i went to go back 
to college and the guy who was the head who was also the head of sport so he was quite clever in like he was giving me sport like training advice then you know because I wasn't you know it wasn't that structured and he said Mark do me a favor you missed like your attendance is woeful because of your races um do me a favor um stop wasting your time and more importantly stop stop wasting my time um I, you're not allowed to enroll so I think at that point I was like I had to like call my dad I was like, I'm not allowed to go to that college um because he thinks it's a waste of my time and I should be pursuing sport so I think at that point it was it was right I need to knuckle down and try and uh, make this into something and and you had some good early success at the British rounds and uh, I do also want to have you on for I think you've got a good analytical brain as well maybe similar to me you had some notes and I have some notes and then your first podium came quite quickly in 2005 at St Anne do you remember anything about that building up to that and, and what it felt like to stand on a World Cup podium with some of your idols and stars of the sport? Well, I do remember because I remember I remember going there for the first time in 2002. And I went there and it went from the top, you know, like kind of like it does now, but it go it went more left out of the start and down the, the iconic fast piece um that's the transcontinental video i'm sure you watched that i remember watching that over and over again and the fast pst kind of corners it went down there anyway that week there 2002 dude i couldn't even get halfway down the track i had never seen anything like it in all my life i had you know i'd only ever got well i wasn't riding motocross at the time but even since then i've only ever got blisters riding motocross and that week i had my hands were full of blisters i'd never ridden anything so rough so fast so technical and i got like 37th or something that first that first year and my and i was literally had to like shake my arms halfway and then try and just it was just an absolute struggle to the bottom i couldn't i, I just physically wasn't strong enough to ride down that hill so that year that winter I went away and all I thought about was Monson Anne. And I was like, I need to work and work. So I'm strong enough to literally ride from the top of that hill safely, mainly. It was it the- was like that back in the day. Some of these tracks, how long, gnarly, technical, there was a, a level of survival physically, even technically as well. Just getting down clean, well, you're going to have a pretty good run. I also yeah. remember being out of my depth the first time at Mount St. Anne, the long course. Yeah, it was, and you, I would know how many wood sections I had and say there was like, I don't know, there was like two or three towards the finish and two of them were really, really gnarly with massive holes or there was like a gap onto a rock that you had to do and if you were short or long, you're probably going to go over the bars because you're too tired to hold on. So I made it my aim to be competent to ride down that hill and I guess that was probably fueled a little bit by Steve because Steve was so good down there and he won there I think he won there that year um he won there the next year in 03 which was a a really short course and I remember being so disappointed that it was only like two minutes long um and then finally in in 2005 I got I got third um and that was my first that was my first proper pro year with 
MBUK and, and Santa Cruz. And um, yeah, I remember ringing my dad like straight after the race and being in tears because I was just like so elated that I'd like made it, you know, into, you know, something that I'd just read about for, for years and years and years. And the relief of doing it and, and it, it was a, it was a pipe dream. It wasn't, you know, I didn't actually, I don't think that I've ever set off and said, if I don't get third today, I'm going to be, I'm going to like at a world cup. I don't think I've ever got to that point until much later, much later at races where I'd be like, right, if I put it together, I, I can win. And I, and I, at world cup, as you know, it's so hard that you, you don't, I guess that confidence is is hard. It's a hard thing about it. It's fickle as well. I mean, confidence really comes from showing yourself. Yes, you can have good preparation. And I think a key lesson there, it's lovely hearing the backstory, is you were out of your depth and could have easily been despondent or disappointed and not felt like you could be a mountain and competitor, but you went and kind of overhauled yourself and worked at yourself. I felt like that at Fort William. I struggled there the first few years. It it was survival. It's actually scary because I didn't think I'd hold on. No. And with my body type, and I kind of started learning and watching guys and getting fitter. And I and I I didn't get on the podium at Fort William, but I got in the top ten. And I there was almost more I got out of that, knowing that I'd kind of reinvented myself or walked worked towards something that I shouldn't have been good at. You know. Yeah, and that and that fact of like changing you know something that doesn't necessarily play in your hands is almost more satisfying than than just you know if i come to try and race you on your local track then obviously i would expect to have an uphill struggle and then when you have those struggles and you overcome it it's very satisfying and um you you spoke about tracks and and that's what i also want to pick into your brain have a bit of fun fun about this let's let's get your opinions on on the on the tracks of then tracks of today your your feeling of it because i know being a racer you still have a, a race fan inside you and, and like to watch a bit yeah i i watch i watch everything that that i didn't watch it the first year that i the year that i had a little sabbatical from racing i didn't watch and then I've watched pretty much ever like since I came back, and then the years that I've two years that I've been out of it. Um, I mean, the racetracks for me, I understand like the way that they are now, but but my like the the sort of brunt of what I feel is that basically what's happened is two points. One is that I think now the depth of talent is so much deeper so maybe you only had like 20 guys 15 guys that were really really good and if they put it together then they could win now now that depth of of talent is much deeper and you've got people stacked in like eight guys a second 10 guys a second but there's two ways of looking at that the tracks are more simple um, so therefore it's easier for more people to go faster firstly. And then secondly, you know, it, there's no separators so much. I, I don't feel like the last two years that I did that the tracks were hard enough. And I think that if you go to 
if you go to, I mean, Valdesol is an exception. I think that that one has, has stood its has stood its test, and it's very very true to what it what it always has been. Um, Andorra potentially yet yeah, yet yeah, very close to what it has been. Fort William is just I think it's unique in in the way it is. But then Leogang, like I wrote that in my notes, like Leogang 2009. I felt that that track, a lot of people didn't like it and gave it a bit of a bad bad you know bad rep. I didn't think it was my favorite track, but if you think about it back then, it had everything. Do you think, like, do you I, agree? I agree. No, some guys have slagged Lega enough, and I started looking at it, and I've been on the side of the track watching, and it has, you have to be an all-round bike rider. It's got steeps at the bottom. You have to be fit, because that's where the technical stuff comes in. You've got to carry speed on the motorway. You've got to be yeah. good at, like, awkward off-camber. It's got shaly shit that lies on top of hard pack, but then it also cuts up, can be rooty. So I would say that it got worse of a worse of a reputation than it deserves. But if I'm thinking, like, more in 2009, yeah. like, it was, it had everything. And it was wet, which made it more physical, which it probably wasn't as physical as it, it turned out that year. And I think it's got more manicured now where, the tree sections are faster. You're you're more on like a, a surface, um, which you know it. it I put my hand up. It didn't suit my. It didn't suit my me uh, in those last two years. And I, the problem is, I feel that I want to be blown away when I watch these guys, which I am, and I'm blown away more from the point of the sheer commitment and speed that they ride at now. But I want to be blown away with their skill and the way that they apply themselves to like a more technical section. Like, let's be honest, you're not going to get the kind of time gaps that we used to get, you know, when I was, when, when I first got my, I can't remember the times of my first podium in 05, but the gaps between riders were much bigger. And now they're all compressed because everybody is very, well, like closer to closer in skill set and closer in you know fitness and speed but i feel that the times will still be really close if they ride you know at somewhere like like we went to mirabel it was really natural and a, a mega track when was that 14 i think 14 like that was a classic french track that had everything roots cambers rocks uh rough natural grass like you don't get any natural grassy sections so much these days um and i just feel like the racing will still be close but it could be more exciting if it was a little bit more challenging for for the i think they could be challenged more is basically what i'm trying to say yeah we've got some incredible riders and, and the way they're pushing him and i think sometimes some of the tracks are losing the soul and it's nice to go back to leger has a bit of soul and i think there's a way Potentially, there's a way to get some of the track that's maybe not on the camera to be more technical. And there's times where getting down a track was quite tricky. And now the name of the game is minimizing your mistakes and optimizing your runs so much. So, I mean, I guess it's just the evolution of the sport with TV and, and excitement and bike park tracks that have the funding to come and get the get the races there what about the evolution of bikes i mean lots of old clips uh, you've been posting i've been posting i've been getting some responses what sort of responses are you getting to when 
people are looking at some of the speeds and the the bikes we were riding back then. <laughs> this makes me laugh because you know that, that particular video that I it was John Lawler's uh, Vital Roar and it was the 2010 season and we started in Maribor I believe in the in the mud and you know there was I I like just I just for my story I filmed a few clips on my phone and posted them and there people are like like how did you even ride that and I'm like I don't know and then the next comment was like why are you riding your BMX and then you know the suspension looks terrible or all this kind of stuff and I'm like I don't remember that it was particularly scary like I thought my bike was awesome I had like relatively like I had adjustments on you know stem length and stuff I could change stems and <clears throat> I rode a medium GT Fury then and and it felt pretty neutral like my fork would stand up I wouldn't get pushed over the front too much I had I had traction and I don't even think when you watch the videos like you and I, I can put this to you whether you what do you think that they don't look like they're pitching like forward or back and you're like kind of riding a bit of a, a seesaw they look I think they look pretty neutral. They're small, of course. They are. They are small. Yeah, when we're talking of the Vital Raw video, and uh, listeners go and Google it of about the t- 2010 season, I I think I was blown away at the speed, and I think it was so cool to see the raw speed of World Cup practice. I think, you know, yes, the sports progressed, but the bikes have progressed a bit. But those bikes weren't bad. I mean, we had good tires, good grip, suspension was pretty good back then, and there is things are a lot better but I agree I didn't feel out of shape but I also got a lot of funny messages about me or my old mongoose I posted some old Rankin footage and yeah I mean thinking back how bad that bike was at the time I didn't really know any better so ignorance was bliss there I mean (laughs) yeah the the bike some of them weren't great but you just you got on with it so the evolution of bikes has been interesting um I've had some time on on the newer bikes, and I would most certainly love to get back on a World Cup track now with with what I have, you know, twenty nine inch front wheel. And I think they would be it would maybe look a bit calmer, but you're still going to push it as hard as you can. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, I mean, I I obviously rode the the Saracen in um, sixteen and seventeen, and we had twenty seven five. I tested. 29 in 17 but it wasn't quite it was a really early prototype yeah but and, dude you're so short you can't tell me you would have been able to ride a 29er come on uh, i ride a 20 i ride a 29er now don't you buzz your ass yeah from time to time yeah i do but not all the time but i don't think that i ride it i like i race here locally on my on my like last year i raced on my um evil reckoning is 29 front and back like 170 front and one 160 on the rear and i buzz maybe in a race run like once but that's only locally i don't think that it's like because it's not quite as steep as you know a world cup track or as fast you're not being you know you're not moving your body english is not that exaggerated um but i don't i don't find that i buy um buzz the tire really i mean it's a very short back end on a on the evil like their whole their whole sort of key points of the way the bike works is very short so maybe that helps my short legs and not 
not hit me in the ass so much. <laughs> you had you went pretty damn quick downhill for such short legs. But the the trail bikes these days, yeah, they've managed to decrease the rear stay, and I'm blown away at how fast they go. Yeah, yeah, you, it's amazing, though, isn't it? You know, if you the 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 evolution of both disciplines of downhill and of trail bikes, it's like the stuff you can do on trail bikes now. Um, that you know, that's what I predominantly ride is is mental. That I would never have done that ten years ago on a trail bike. Um, yeah, it's it's crazy how good they are. So, Mark, you um, there's a few people that have won a World Cup, but I think winning more than one is is very tough. And you you win the World Cup in Vigo, and then a few years later, Valdez Sol, that iconic track. I remember it was the dusty one you on your GT. I actually uh, I'm quite stoked to say, as far as I remember, yeah. that was my first podium, and I shared it with you. So yeah. I just, I mean, you were you were likable on the circuit, and every, you know, sometimes when certain people won, you were like, oh, you may be not as happy if your mate was in second. But I think everyone on that podium looking up to you was was so stoked for you. And if I remember correctly, you maybe weren't firing on all cylinders that year, or maybe the year before, and it seemed like something clicked for for Valdezol. Is there something? that comes back or that you could help the listener with something that kind of helped you kind of get that confidence, you know? Um, I think like 2009 was my first year GT and I did, I was like there, but not really there. Like I was just, I can't remember what my best result was, but I remember it being, you know, just one of those, like I'm sure you've had the same. It's like one of those seasons where you're just the wrong side of the second. So I'd be like, 12 15 18 whatever position and it just wasn't clicking in um, nine and then 2010 i rode my bike a lot more like my downhill bike a lot more i spent time in in le desalp um we were sponsored by le desalp that year so i spent a lot more time in europe riding bigger tracks and i was kind of i think kind of doing the same like i was going into that race i was 12th in the overall so i wasn't <clears throat> i wasn't like in a disastrous position but i wasn't really in a real good position like my my teammate at the time mick Hanna, had had an amazing year the year before and got fourth or fifth overall or something and he'd had some some really good rides so i was kind of being overshadowed which you know that is teammate rivalry is almost as important as your actual race. Like you always want to beat your teammate. So I'd had a, I'd sort of changed a few things, rode a lot more, like I said, and then Valdesol just, it's one of those weekends that just come really easily to me. And, and I, I don't really know why. And that was probably where my whole like sports psychology um, stuff started. Like I started like, just after that, looking into why that year, why that particular race comes so easy. I was so calm. I didn't have any real like anxiety about the race. I just rode my bike and my bike was, my bike was working well. My, you know, my suspension was good. My mechanic, Mark Morrison was, I trusted him wholeheartedly with, we were kind of on the same page. We had a really good relationship and I think I qualified like eighth or maybe even 12th. I don't know. And then I just executed my run. Um, it was, I don't, you know, I, I don't know if, um, 
perhaps I can bring you on this is I've probably done that three or four times in my career where I've had a run that's been so precise and so perfect for what I sort of had imagined that I can't actually remember it. Do you have that? Definitely. I've spoken to a few people about that and it'd be nice to dig into psychology. I think for what I'm hearing, it seemed like you focused on yourself. And I have this weird recollection that that's how you did that race because I was there and sometimes you just know when a guy's getting on with his own thing, he's not worried about anyone else, not worried about anyone's lines. He's just doing what he can do and doing it to his potential. Yeah. So it sounds like, as you said, you qualified well and you and Mark were doing your thing. Obviously, you share that with your mechanic. And then you, you'd, it sounds like you visualized what run to do, you'd practice it, and you were able to execute it. So it kind of felt subconscious in a way. And, and do you... Did you come to some realization or reflection in the sports psychology space to understand anything else to help you moving forward? Well, when okay, I jump a little bit, like then a few years later, I joined the Athertons and I, I saw I saw a few different psychologists between 10 and um, tw- uh, 12 was my first year. On, on the Atherton program. So I was like, right, I'm going into this cauldron of family, you know, there's, you know, big egos. Rachel is obviously amazing, amazingly successful. G had been a longtime rival and someone that I used, you know, didn't do a very good job of beating him regularly, but I always wanted to beat him, you know, because we were a similar age. So I was like, I need to have a really good person. And then I met this person, um, Jennifer from Birmingham University and basically the, the the simplicity of what we talked about on the psychology stuff was like it was based on a perfect race and my perfect race where I was like giving I feel like my most natural racing execution was Valder Sol. I never I never executed a race so calmly and in such a natural state as I did on that day um maybe a couple of nationals at home, but I don't think that they really count because they're not on the same stage. And that was what was, we tried to form a program that, that it was on a piece of paper and it was, and then it was on like an MP3 where, you know, little, little tick, little tick boxes where I knew that, you know, I'd done, I had my Olbus oil or, I had a certain drink in the morning or I listened to certain music and all these things were like built into this five minute, like little audio clip that would sort of, if it was going bad, I'd listen to it and I could relate it back and try and sim- make my run, my, my execution more simple. Um, and that was what I used to try and <clears throat> try and get each race to be more, more similar closer to what was my perfection if that if that makes sense absolutely i mean you're speaking into routine there you guys have created a routine and i think that's such a lesson i would say that maybe some of my regrets were not reflecting on the good races and writing down that routine what went well what i liked what got me in that calm space because sometimes you you're so uh in the moment celebrating and you, you just run this confidence until you have a bad race. And then you're not sure how to get back. And it sounds like you were 
good enough to reflect and create a routine. And the more you create a routine, the more you can forget about the unknowns and you've done everything you can. So all you can go out and is execute and see how well you can do. I think that's brilliant that you were able to create that routine from a successful race. Cause a lot of people reflect and go, okay, I had a bad race. This was in my control. This was not in my control. Okay. I'll change that. But some people, yeah. they say you learn more from your bad race. I understand that. And I agree, but I also think people don't learn enough to help themselves when they have a really good race, to create that routine, to go, well, this routine just worked. Why not use it for all races going forward? Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. Like uh, one thing that I knew that I really struggled with was if we had a, well, both ways, but more so from dry weather, if, we, if it poured with rain and my confidence wasn't like booming out of the roof, I would really struggle to execute my best performance when the weather changed because i couldn't i couldn't manage the speed to apply a consistency where it was like really fast it was either too fast and i send the bike down the hill and we part ways or it was way too cautious and i would be nowhere um, and that was that is one of the things that i felt that was a real weakness for me was when the weather turned quickly it would throw my mind all to pieces um and i i don't know whether you know situations that you think where i was i was really poor oh that and sea otter very poor at sea otter daniel but (laughs) but most (laughs) most of us were for a long time it took me ages to get good at that sometimes you just don't gel with the track even if you do your routine and you try hard those Oh, I spoke to Brendan about those are some of the hardest, like emotional, painful experiences when you, you had a good run and you just get absolutely smoked. Yeah. Yeah. I got absolutely smoked at Sea Otter. <laughs> well, I mean, you're a two time World Cup winner, so I think you made up for it. Uh, that was brilliant. I, I hadn't heard that from you. It's something that I worked with on a sports psychologist, and that's fulfilling your potential more often. And if you think on a graph, if Aaron Gwynn his potential of a race run time is X. I don't think many people are that far behind him. Sometimes at their best potential are better than him or the same. But when he's on those career winning seasons, he's able to get very close to his top potential more often than others. And yeah. and, and I think if you move back to a routine and you, you're really preparing well, I think you have more chance. And that goes for everything. Like you said, your pre-race routine at the top, you're doing your Elvis oil which for listeners at home, something Mark actually taught me. And and sometimes I think it's more than what it does to you physically. It's just a routine. It takes about 30 seconds to prep. You put it in your nose and you're on your trainer and it takes your mind off the stress and the nerves. You're doing your Elbasaur, then you're doing your warm-up, then you're getting your goggles ready, then you're high-fiving your mechanic and boom, you're in the start gate. And if you do that consistently, that that I think that builds confidence that you've done everything you can to go perform. Am I am I understanding that correctly? Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly right. And I like all the soil is just basically clears your nasal and and you know I didn't have a cold. I didn't have a cold for seven well seven weekends of the year, but I just used it because that smell and that you know clearing my nose that of very little. It was like a, a trigger that meant right. Okay, this is we're down to business now. We need to we need to perform. 
so that was you know one of the key things that that really i i would get i would get loads of anxiety when i like forgot it or couldn't find it in europe and i'd be running around the pits trying to blag it off like you or pe or someone when you've you know made a mistake and forgot it so it was definitely a, a you'll enjoy this part. one so uh Speaking of routines, and uh, sometimes I think uh, pro athletes and actually businessmen alike, you get superstitious or you find something you want to latch onto it. So uh, I liked a bit of sugar before my race run, and there's various um, studies out on that. Caffeine is probably a little bit better, but I would get a bit of caffeine from a Coca-Cola, Coke. Yeah. In America, Monk Dog, um, shame, he's not with us anymore, but one of the most amazing human beings and mechanics on the circuit he um, he was famous for his Mountain Dew in America. And he said, fool, have a Mountain Dew. So I cracked a Mountain Dew and had a few sips before yeah. my US Open run. And I managed to win that race. But it, it wasn't, I know now and I know then it wasn't because of the Mountain Dew. And, and I I believe I had a very similar outlook to that race that you did in Val de Sol. I was just, everything clicked and I planned exactly how to ride every section. And I just got it how I thought I should. Every pedal stroke. And I won the race. And then I flew over to Fort William with a case full of Mountain Dew because that was my <laughs> new pre-race routine. <laughs> and I would be in Europe cracking these things. And that's how silly some of su- – that's why superstition doesn't really work because sometimes you can't <laughs> recreate all of them. No. No, totally. Like, yeah, that's hard to get consistently in the UK, Mountain Dew. Yeah, Duke. Mountain Dew. So, yeah. That that's funny. One. So, yeah, you had many successes and, and we formed a friendship on the circuit, which I'm still thankful to this day and, and sharing those sort of stories. Do you have some uh, untold stories that come to mind of the circuit? or I mean, you've told quite a lot before a race right. that maybe other people didn't know, but some funny ones or anything that stands out? Um, it's kind of a – I wrote it down here is uh, Champry Worlds 2011. Well – that place we went there in 2010 and it was really muddy i'm not sure like i'm not sure you remember it was like horrendously oh. muddy well 11 uh, was dry and then pissed rain yeah the first few days was dry and awesome yeah for worlds yeah it was super sketchy that worlds like i think they almost cancelled it because um I, I was with mark morrison my, my mechanic at the time so we had this world's bike that was painted like super cool and the the British colors and I'd since like March or April I decided I was gonna ride flats well I'm not I'm not renowned for riding flats and if I've ever had to ride flats in a world cup because I just couldn't continue to clip in because of mud I look I look so bad on them like I've got duck foot I've got duck feet and you know my foot position is bad and all these things so I was like if I can do, if I'm going to give my best down that hill, I need to ride flats. And I decided to ride flats, which was big for me. So anyway, we get this new bike. It's the same, it's the same frame um, as I'd, I'd rode since 2009, just a, a different color. And we had, we had offset um, headset cups. So they, they sit in the head tube as part of the headset. And then if you've got a, a neutral position, with your steerer tube for your head tube these give you an offset position so it allows you to slacken it would slacken the bike maybe a degree and a half i think and um 
I think with standard um, standard headset caps and offset bushes in the shock, which do the same, they offset the shock to allow the bike to sit a little bit lower and therefore slacken the head angle. So standard race form was 63.5. Um, and I was like, Mark, it's not slack enough. So at the time, Bergtech were making the offset bushes for me and then GT provided the offset cups. So I ring DC and I'm like, right, um, we've got eight mil shock bolts in my bike. And he's like, yep. And he says, he says, uh, I said, I want six. So you know like how thin six mil is, it's like nothing. So we get these super high tensile steel bolts, uh, run six mil hardware. Anyway, so we've got six mil hardware that lowers the bike maybe another half a degree or something. Maybe a degree, I, I can't remember exactly. But so when building the bike up on like Tuesday or Wednesday before the race, and we figured out because I'd shunted the shock so far forward into the front triangle, it wouldn't fit. So here I am, world's frame, all these fancy colors and all this stuff, and my shock doesn't fit. And I was like, Mark, get the Dremel out. And he's like, no, no, I'm not Dremeling that frame. It won't be safe. And um, so, you know, like, do you remember that bike? Like the seat tower was carbon and there was a little triangle cut out and you could Absolutely, see Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, so it was right in there where the shock mounted. And you needed a little bit more room to get it to push forward to get, into the frame so the BB would drop even more. Yeah, yeah. So he gets the Dremel out, like, reluctantly after I'd, like, gone, I'd, like, kind of lost my, I, not lost my temper, but I'd been really assertive. And I'd be like, Mark, that shock has got to go in that bike, and it's not going in there with 8 mil hardware. It needs to be lower, and it needs to be slacker. So he Dremels it for, like, I don't know, an hour or something. <laughs> <laughs> got the shock in there and uh banged it in and we had like um i think we had like a 62.5 region head angle so we had a really like i know that like i remember mondraker guys spagnolo and and barrel the rumor was that they had like 60 or something um and i got sick um that uh, that world and i actually think that it was one of my greatest rides. Um, firstly, because I rode flats, which I uh, had to learn to, to, to ride them competently, because, you know, as you know, it's a skill in itself. And then secondly, it poured with rain from seeding or qualifying, whatever you want to call it at Worlds. And I remember sitting in the gate and the rain hammering down. You've got like full mud guards, full spikes, roll off um, goggles like, like motocross guys use. And there was, there was stones rolling down the track in front of me um, because of the amount of water that was um, going down that hill that day. Um, yeah. So I, that was, that's a pretty funny story and it has a good, um, you know, a good ending. Cause I, I felt like I rode really well that day. That's great. So a, a once-off custom-painted couple thousand dollar bike, <laughs> we take the Dremel to it. There's a <laughs> there's two sides that I think pros are. Um, you're analytical and you and you could feel that you needed a slacker head angle, you know. And then at the same point, you're like, 
just bring the Dremel. Like we're going to make a plan. <laughs> yeah, I'm, it's going to be low. I don't know if it's going to be 62.5 or 62.1. I don't care. But you, you got so stubborn. You're dreaming this thing, you know? Yeah. Yeah, like I had it in my head that those things, that it had to happen. And yeah. I, I guess I had no, it wasn't science. I didn't know how much it was going to slacken it out. Um, but I knew, yeah, like you say, it had to be slacker. So yeah, Sometimes there's a gut feeling and a feeling and, and sometimes you just need certain things to happen to help your head and, and other things. You physically need the bike to work a different way. I think that's there's such a fine line between testing on feel and, and time but if you don't have a good feeling you don't have confidence so how are you going to go fast anyway it, exactly confidence is in this in mountain biking and especially in downhill confidence is everything absolutely everything and um, i mean that that race in 2011 um there's other sports that just wouldn't run their races in <laughs> free ride in mountain biking it gets windy they call it off motocross runs in pretty dire conditions but there's so many other sports that they would call off in a second but somehow downhill it's if the lift's running you're going down that course and and weather weather plays a role as well that's brilliant brilliant memories and you couldn't even see the mountain that day do you remember no like, you, you know couldn't. how it was horrendous yeah it was horrendous for uh uh, epic as well as like how many people still talk about that race you know danny executed arguably one of the greatest runs in in the history of our sport on that day against all the odds the weather everything yeah so, Clip, uh, clipped in as well i remember riding flats for two weeks in in morzine i decided to do that and uh, it was paying off until i didn't able to stay on the bike in the final but quality was good and 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 i like that side of it when you're forced out of your comfort zone and, and and to try different things to kind of keep up with the guys that were either riding flats or you knew would ride clips pretty well there so that's a great yeah. great story so mark you, you've been around a while we're of similar age we did worlds together we bumped into each other back in caprun in 2002 but you come through your whole career with maybe more success I often said about myself than I ever dreamed out to achieve. So I'm, I'm really thankful and humble that I got to share that with you. But then in 2015, you, you have a sabbatical or you retire. Can you talk to me about that, the mental struggles or the what it was like to be forced to take a break or decide yourself due to contracts, you know? Um, <clears throat> but I didn't see it coming if I was blatantly honest brutally honest i didn't see it i didn't see it coming i thought that i would there was a lot of changes at gt at that time as far as like management and stuff and i was you know i think i was i hadn't had the best year in 14 and i think i was like 14th in the world or something 15th in the world something like that uh i was british champion which is no you know it's no small feat. It's not an easy thing to win the, the British the British National Series. And the offers that I had or the potential offers that I had meant that, you know, my, it was going to be a salary reduction of like at least 50%. And then there was other avenues where I was kind of try and cobble together my own personal deal and you were, I was asking for revenue for certain companies and they would like, they'd be like, well, we have a whole team that 
we pay that much money. So we can't afford to pay you as one rider that much money. And I was, it was really hard. I was like, well, how, how can these people get around the world and earn some money if they don't, if they don't have the budget? Like I wouldn't, like if I'd have gone down that route, I would have had the budget to go to all the races, but, but I wouldn't have had the budget to earn any money um so then i kind of figured out by like end of january that it wasn't happening and then you know that was tough but i felt and i i feel that like if you've got a product and it's worth it's worth x amount of money and that amount of money was the proof was my contracts from the previous five years my money had gone up so the product was better it had more value in rate in results it had more value in exposure it had more value in in you know the approachability of that product and and then for someone to say well okay i'll pay you 50 percent less or 60 percent less then it, you know it completely devalues it and i was like i don't i don't think that that's right so so i i didn't take any options i didn't pursue it and um I ended up at GMBN for like their first launch of, uh, you know, everyone knows what their YouTube channel has gone from strength to strength. So I did 12 months there instead. Um, and I missed racing so much. Like that year, I went to a couple of races. I raced Fort William as a, a from, I got a bike from Scott actually and raced Fort William. Um, and I was just watching. I, I was just like wishing that I could be doing it, but there just wasn't an option to do it. So it was sad. It sounds like your hand was a bit forced there mentally. I think it's a little bit different picture to what I went through. A bit more ready, ready to hang it up, and you, you weren't. And and that um, must have been really tough mentally, being at those races, knowing that if you'd had good preparation of bike, you could probably beat those guys that were still earning money. And I think that's that is tough mentally and is that what brought you back um in 2016 and 2017 yeah i knew that if i could get into a good place with good people that i still had something to give um and i felt wholeheartedly that i that i that i had potential to to do really well um will longdon was my manager and um from 2005 to 2008 with mbuk um and I was speaking to Madison and trying to get in there and there wasn't any space and they'd already had riders and contracts and stuff. And we kept in touch and I was like, look, look, dude, like I want it. Like just, just if, if you can get, like we agreed, we agreed the terms and, and, and I was, a, I was a go for, um, for 16 and, and 17. I mean, it, it's, it didn't go it didn't go like i i planned it to and and that's just how how brutal you know racing racing is and you need you need sort of your eggs to all line up or the stars to all line up for it to come together um we had some tire troubles in 16 and i was getting punches and stuff um and didn't make some of the mains um and then in 17 i was I think 16 was really hard. Like I thought that I would get fit and be right back, back in, you know, the top 20 quite easily. And I was, my fitness was so bad, mate. 
I was like, literally, like, I would just be blowing so bad because I hadn't, I just didn't have the conditioning. And it took me till like June of 16 to get where I had like fitness to, that was probably one of my biggest disappointments was Fort William in June. And I got like fifth or something, fourth or fifth in time practice. And, and then I got a flat in qualifying and didn't qualify. And I was like, I think it's the first time I've cried at a race. Was the first time. In twenty, that was twenty sixteen. Yeah. And yeah. You, so it was just way tougher than you thought. You know, being away, you thought, okay, I only missed a year, and I'm going to graft in the off season. But that residual of a year off was was really hard, more physically than than mentally. It took me a long time to get fit. A long time, and then for seventeen, I was really fit, and I started training earlier. I'd carried on riding to try and like, you know, I think there had definitely been, the sport had progressed as far as speed in that year that I was, that I'd missed. Um, And then I broke my ankle at Lords. So that meant that I was out until, I can't remember, July or something. So I had like, from the first World Cup, I had to have six weeks out uh, with a broken ankle. So it was just, it was just didn't really go right. And I didn't get, like we talked about previously, I didn't get that confidence up to where I was like at a point where I could execute my potential. Um, and, you know, there's certain people that I'm sure I could, you know, I always think that the, the, the Aussies as a generalization can have the worst race the weekend before, like awful, awful show of performance. And then the next weekend they'll go and podium. You and I was Aussies in general, Mick Hanna. No, Aussies in general. Okay. Like, I think that they could have the the worst weekend, and like they don't. I don't know why, but I'm not like that. I need to like you know get make a top twenty, and then I make a top fifteen, and it'll be like a slow burn process where my confidence comes up. And this, you know, the Aussies is like like I've always been like how they could just be like they're either kind of you know to, to checkers or wreckers you know what i mean they're just like they execute an amazing performance and then the next weekend it will be like a just blown up to bits and then the next weekend they're back and it's like people can just pull these amazing rides out and i was never that person i always had to be like a slow burn where i was coming i was coming i was gaining momentum and and then that would be how i would sort of generate consistency but, um, you know, everybody's different and that's what makes the sport so interesting. Well, I mean, that's what does make downhill. Um, it is a fickle sport with confidence as well as you've only got that one run and the way it's kind of designed, it's a lot harder than other sports, I think, to consistently get race runs and keep the confidence. You've only got that three minute, you can have a great time run, a great quality run and you can get a flat or you can make a small mistake. And you only have a few races a year, so it is tough, and it doesn't always go your way. And and um, I mean, I can empathise with that. Sometimes when you've put in all the work, you just don't get something out of it. So I mean, that's kind of how how life goes sometimes. And catch me up now. I mean, I think you can be super proud of your career. You've got a a, a great history in the sport, and it was only two thousand seventeen. It's not long ago that you were racing, and. Sounds like you did kind of take a step away out of the limelight, a bit, you know, out of social media. I know you've been racing locally. I've seen your enduro results. 
catch me up now on on evil it it sounds like uh, there's a new lease on life and enjoying riding again maybe away from racing yeah like i've well especially in lockdown i've been riding most days like riding my trail bike and building a new little trail there's some some sort of jumps that kind of challenge me you know technically in my old age um so i've been doing that and then my whole agreement with evil is that um it's 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 very informal um i actually approached them and said like i'd like to ride your bikes i think they look i think they look sick and how about you know we we just we just kind of play it by ear and then it's from year one i did you know i did my own thing i did some edits with berg tech who've been a really a really big supporter of of me and keeping me keeping me in 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 the limelight to an, to an extent that like they push me on their social media and stuff. Um, and, and I've just kind of formed like this little package of people that I represent and, um, just have fun riding bikes. Basically, I don't have any pressure to be, I can be fat. I can be slow up the hills. I can be, you know, as long as I'm having fun and, and they feel like they're getting good, good exposure. I guess everybody's happy. Um, I was lucky enough to go to. Have you rode at Sintra in Portugal near Lisbon? No, but I've I've been there. I've ridden in Portugal, but I've been on holiday in Sintra. It's incredible. So you say the riding's good. Yeah, I went. I would advise that if you are like in Europe and you've got a spare week or a spare weekend, go there. I think Sven and uh, those guys went there last year. Um, so the so the people were telling me when we went down there to launch then um evil's new 120 bike the following so i was lucky enough to be involved with that which you know it's you've done bike launches i've done bike launches before but i hadn't i hadn't done one for quite some time so it was a really cool thing to be to be involved in and i met kyle norberton who he rides for evil and um over there in the in, well he's from from canada and and it was cool like there was no pressure and we just did a week filming this video and you know that was really fun and it was an amazing location i had a lot of fun riding and uh yeah it's just it's just super casual but a lot of fun well i think you've still got a lot to to give back to the industry and it's it's great to hear those stories and and uh enjoying riding away from from the clock but before i I let you go. I've uh, been playing a little game with with the riders, and I want to build the perfect rider. There's five categories, um, okay. and you've got to pick. You can only use a name once. You've got to try like build a perfect package. So we'll start with fitness and strength. Those are that's in the same category. Okay. So of the current um, crop of actually it doesn't have to be the current current crop. You can use anyone from the past as well to build the perfect downhiller. Okay, fitness and strength. There's a lot of strong guys. Uh, Minar. Okay. Awesome. You might want to use him later, but I guess there's a few guys with good mental mental strengths. And uh, who's jumping would you put in there? Oh, wow. Uh, who jumps gnarly stuff? Do so you want gnarly, not star? Okay, so you go and... So for gnarly... No, no. Well, I don't know. 
jumping. Oh, there's so many good people. Ruffalato, maybe? Yeah, that's a good one. That's a good one. Because you can, you can, his weaknesses on the downhill circuit, you can uh, offset with these other guys. Okay, and then uh, cornering? Oh, cornering. Oh, um, gotta be. Uh, oh, no, I can't think of his name. <laughs> That's um, all right, we can come. So Kona, he writes for Kona, Aussie. Oh, Connor yeah, yeah, Conaferent. Yeah, Conaferent. Yeah. Uh, technical, so I guess that's like steep or when it's rocky, you know, he's kind of got good technical maneuver. Uh, oh, who's really... Or um, Tyrion. Yeah, he's, he's... Yeah, Remy Tyrion, he's come up. And then the last category, your mental strength. Uh, Vulios. Vulios, yeah. I was actually thinking before you came on, I wonder, Nico in his prime and Sam Hill in his prime, how, how that would have been. Oh, I could have put Sam as my technical and steep guy, couldn't I? Yeah, all cornering. I mean, Sam, yeah. all these guys in their heyday, you could you you know, you know can use them in all these aspects. Yeah, Sam mine's was pretty not... good mentally as well when he, you know. Yeah, he was, yeah. But yeah, Volio's winning all those world champs. Who do you think takes it? Nico in his prime or Sam Hill in his prime? Um, Sam. It's a big statement. That's awesome. I think Nico is... Yeah? I think Sam because... it On that day, I think Sam would risk more than what Nico would risk Nico Nico is like immensely fast don't get me wrong but it was precision and calculated yeah he was I a think, tactician wasn't he yeah whereas Sam would just be able to elevate beyond what most people were comfortable with in his in his heyday yeah if it was a if it was a Leo gang run then maybe Volios could like be the tactician to get the most out of the run but if you put them both down Val the Sol it was, it's yeah. hard to beat Sam in his heyday. So I guess it depends on the track as well. Mark, dude, it's been so good catching up. And, and I think I'm going to sneak you on um, to talk some more bench racing. I think you've got a great mind for it. And you've been in the sport so long with great success. So this won't be the last time. So thanks so much for your time. Yeah, I look forward to that. And uh, thanks for having me on. It's been, uh, like I say, it's been awesome. We've had a, we've had a good chat, trip down memory lane. Yeah, no, stay well and um, good luck for all the future endeavours. Yeah, look after yourself, mate. See you soon. Big thank you to Mark Beaumont for hopping on a call. How good were the insights he shared into routine, building that confidence and trying to maintain that. I think you can learn a lot from using those processes in writing and in life. So thanks again to him. And a big shout out to you guys, the listeners at home or wherever you are. Thanks for tuning in. Send in some feedback. Send me a direct message. I really appreciate getting those. You guys have been too good. So give us a review, a rating on those podcast platforms. Till the next week, stay well, guys. Bye.